Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. Fun fact, Ben, is that tomorrow Christmas in July, this is something you guys don't know about me, all right? I'm a Christmas tree farmer. Yeah, yeah, like for, for real. I grow Christmas trees. How about that? That's what we do. It's a choose and cut farm. I put trees in the ground when they're about yay big, and then like seven years later, people come and cut them. It's a, a long process. So since most of you have been alive, I've done like two cycles of trees. Um, but anyway, I'm a very festive person. So you guys, it's always a busy time of the year. So when you guys are talking about Christmas, it gives me a little bit of anxiety. But anyway, uh, I still got a ways to go before that big season in, in my life. Tribe wars. Some of you guys have some ground to make up. The good news is it's only Monday. And here's what I did. I went back to the drawing board, all right? I went back to the powers that be. I realized that 25,000 points was asking for a lot, okay? So I went back and I said, how about 5,000 points? Well, it'll be like the silver buzzer, you know? Can I have a silver buzzer and award 5,000 points? And they still said no. So I'm gonna keep trying for you guys though. All right, I'm going to keep trying because some of y'all need some serious help. Anyway, um, like you really need some help. One other thing. Since last night, we had a conversation. I'm going to find where I can stand and where I can't stand here in a second. Um, Since last night, like two of you have honored my new nickname. All right. Cornbread, all right? When you see me walking across camp, I want y'all to holler, cornbread, you know? Let me know. Carter, Tate, and Amar sought me out, and they're like, cornbread! And I'm like, what up? And then, who did I give the nickname to? Was that that Carter or Tate? Tate came up to me. He had a plate with nothing on it, but you could tell there had been a lot of that pudding stuff on it. And so I said, Tate, you know what would be a good... This is how nicknames come about. Tate, you know what would be a good nickname for you? Pudding, right? That's how nicknames happen. You guys need to be aware of these things, all right? You have a friend that's doing something that stands out, boom, opportunity for a nickname, all right? Pudding, cornbread. I want to hear some more nicknames as we go along, all right? Uh, but there's time for that later. For now, let's recap. I'm wasting valuable time up here jawing about nothing. Last night, we defined the word freedom, all right? Let me read it to you again. Freedom is the condition of not being in captivity or the condition of being free of restraints, especially the ability to act without control or interference by another or by circumstance. My hope for you guys is that as we go throughout this week, we would redefine that word freedom. And that when we leave here on Friday, when somebody says freedom, that that we have a new definition of what that looks like um, in each and every one of our lives. And so tonight we're going to begin that journey. We're going to dig a little bit deeper and start to redefine our understanding 
of what that word means, okay? And to do that, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at creation, okay? So if you have a Bible with you, you can go to Genesis chapter 1. Actually, we're only going to be in Genesis chapter 1 for just a second. In fact, I'll just quote it for you. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? A lot of you, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with that. You know that that is according to Scripture when everything began to happen. All right? Now, I understand, as, as we talked about last night, as it was uh, reiterated to you guys before worship, that, that we're all in a different place as far as our understanding and, and, and maybe in our spiritual walk. And so there's a good chance that some of you, when I say creation, your mind goes to a place where you say, oh boy, here we go. Uh, we're going to base everything that we talk about from here on uh, on a fairy tale. Maybe you're skeptical about creation. I understand that. The reality is, believing what we read in Scripture requires faith. All right? Faith, a definition, putting a definition to that. Faith is trusting or believing in something that can't exactly be proven or validated right before your eyes. Uh, I told you guys that I'm a Christmas tree farmer. Do you believe that? All right, so you, you believe that I'm a believable person. You have faith in that. And I'm not lying to you, okay? But, but that's how faith works. You know, it's, we, 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 we uh, hear something, we process that, and we you know, we, we trust, we believe, but it doesn't mean that we blindly follow something. It, it means that we sort of, we navigate things, we investigate things, we try and make sense of things, and then we come to a logical conclusion, even though we can't exactly prove what it is that we believe. And since none of us were there in the beginning, then we have to adopt pretty much one of two philosophies. And, and here's those two philosophies. Either scripture's telling us the truth, when it says that God is eternal and existed outside of everything that we, we uh, know and understand, that he existed in the beginning and that he created all things, that's one thing that we can believe. Or the other option is we believe that, that nothing existed and that um, out of nothing came something, and then that something evolved into what we see around us now. And the truth is, both points of view require a tremendous amount of faith. And we can't, outside of the scriptures, prove the Genesis account. But I would say this, that God reveals himself to us in nature, and God reveals himself to us in the fact that design points to a designer. Okay? Now, I've got a picture. This is a fairly famous picture that we're going to put up here. The what is this picture? Mona Lisa. All right. I personally don't understand the magnificent uh, appeal of the Mona Lisa, but, uh, but here's, here's why I show you this picture. None of you, when you saw this picture either now or for the first time, none of you stopped and stared at that picture and said, man, I, I wonder how long it took for that picture to paint itself. Or I wonder how long it took for that picture to come into being. Now, when you look at that picture or any other picture that's been created, no matter how amazing or how terrible it is, you look at that and what comes to your mind is, I wonder who created that. 
I wonder who designed that. I wonder who painted that. And yet we, we, we look around us and that same principle doesn't always apply to people. Uh, the fact that everything around us works in perfect harmony and unity indicates that there is uh, divine design, that there was a creator who put all of these things into place and into motion. And I would suggest to you that the Genesis account tells us that God is the creator, okay? So that's where we are in the beginning. And if you're still skeptical, that's okay. Bear with me for this week and let's build upon this and let's see what happens, okay? All right. So let's jump to verse 2. In the beginning, we put God there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's jump to Genesis chapter 2. All right, God is creating things. And every time he creates something, he, he reflects on what has been made and he said, this is good. This is good, okay? Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jump down to verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So that was the original design in the very beginning. All right? A garden that is beautiful beyond anything that we can imagine. And, and some of you at your age, you might not appreciate nature, um, even though you're right in the thick of nature right now. But as you get older, it's one of those things you, you see and you appreciate a little bit more. I've got these flowers that are growing in my house. And again, when I was your age, did I care anything for flowers? No. I had other things on my mind. But now there, there's these flowers that grow in the edge of my yard. They're called uh, night-blooming primrose. And here's the awesome thing about these. If you're walking by 8.45, 9 o'clock at night during the summer, you can stand and you can, you can stare at this plant and you can literally watch the bud just open up and bloom in a period of like 60 seconds. It goes from being closed as tight as your fist to completely bloomed out. And I watch that and I'm like, man, how does it know to do that? It only does it at, at night, at dusk. How does it know to do that? Well, because it was designed to do that. But I see that and I'm like, man, that's amazing. Um, I've been out hiking and, and, and biking along creeks and streams and, and past a patch of honeysuckle. Have any of you ever just gone up to a patch of honeysuckle and you're like, man, that's awesome. You know, it's amazing. It is, it is amazing. There's so many things in nature that are just, they're amazing. And yet they pale in comparison to what was originally in the garden that God created. You see, everything that we look at, we look at now and we, we marvel at now, like that's, that's creation after it's fallen. That's, that's creation after it ceased to become exactly what God had originally planned it to be. And yet we still look at it and we're like, man, this is amazing. This is so awesome.
In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us that God put Adam there in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And then God created a, a helper for Adam named Eve, and he formed this union between the two of them. And y'all, I, I can't say anything other than just that in God's original design, in the garden, in the beginning, Adam and Eve lacked nothing. They had everything. They had everything. And it, it was perfect. It was exactly as God intended it to be. And they had relationship with God. They had relationship with their creator. He walked with them in the garden and they talked like you and I talk. But there was also a boundary. They had freedom. Our definition, that Adam and Eve had that. There was one boundary. There was one guardrail to their freedom. There was one tree specifically in the garden, and God said, don't eat from this tree. All right. The rest of the garden, it's yours to have, to cultivate, to enjoy. Don't eat from this one tree. Okay? And we would call that, based on what we talked about last night, a guardrail to their freedom, a fence around their freedom. Okay? Now let's think about this for a second. When God gives them that command, this is the tree that exists in the, in the garden that you're not supposed to eat from. When God gives them that command, what is He giving them? Starts with a C. C, choice. Yeah. God's giving them a choice. He's giving them an opportunity to choose. Only one boundary is a guardrail to their freedom. And they have the freedom to decide if they're going to obey and they're going to live as God intended them to live, or if they're going to disobey and reap the consequences of disobedience. For a lot of people, I would venture to say that uh, they, look at, uh, they look at a guardrail to their freedom as an assault on their freedom. We don't often look at guardrails as being a good thing. I told you last night about Stone Mountain State Park near me with a 300-foot waterfall. You know, sometimes people are, you go to Yellowstone, any of you ever been to Yellowstone? There's those like thermal pools that are still melt your face like that. And there's, there's, there's guardrails around those things, not because they don't want you to have fun in Yellowstone, because they don't want your face to get melted off. Because they don't want you to plunge 300 feet to your death. Guardrails are not an assault on your freedom. And yet so often people look at them that way. I've got a friend who refuses to wear a seatbelt. He's got like eight seatbelt tickets. And I asked him one day, I said, why don't you wear that seatbelt? And he said, because I'm told that I have to. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, you know? Seatbelts are there for your good. They're, they're there to keep you from getting, I think the word that y'all would use is yeeted. Is that an appropriate use of that word? To get yeeted through the windshield in the event of an accident? Do I get a thumbs up or a thumbs down for that use? Okay, okay, hey, hey. Okay, I got a so-so. Seatbelts are there for your free or for your good. They're there for your protection. 
Uh, it's not because somebody said, hey, man, I really want to oppress people and I want to put my thumb on them and I want to keep them down and so I'm going to, I'm going to have them wear seatbelts. And yet that's what our flesh often tells us, that someone is keeping something from us to keep us down or to, to uh, oppress us. And y'all, listen, in, in the garden, in the beginning, that's the exact approach that the enemy took when he came and he tempted Eve. Listen to this now, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has said you you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you'll die. And the serpent said to the woman, you'll surely not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Can we say that at church camp? They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. All right, again, the whole tactic of the serpent here was to question God's motive and to make Eve think that he was withholding something good from her. In other words, hey, hey, come over here to the guardrail. Peek over the side and look and see all that you're missing. Oh, oh, you can't see what it is? Well, let me, let me tell you God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you. There's something better. There's something greater here, and God doesn't want you to have it. Well, we just read the text. You guys know what happened. As soon as Adam acted in disobedience, everything in the garden changed. And it didn't change for the better either. Suddenly, they had consequences to deal with. Just like I learned last night, sometimes exercising freedom has has consequences. What were the consequences? Let me sum them up for you. Evil, sin, suffering, sickness, death, separation from God, exile from the garden. They really lucked out that day, didn't they? (laughs) I mean, it's easy for us to look back at it and say, man, how can you be so silly to, to, to do that? Like, you had everything and you gave it up what, for, for sin and sickness and death and uh, severing of this relationship with your creator and being kicked out of this awesome garden that you were put in? Some of you guys have been in this position where the world came to you and promised you something amazing. And you welcomed it. And it left you wanting. It left you terribly unfulfilled. You know, the first time I look back in my life, the first time I remember experiencing this in my own life was at the age of eight. There was a toy that I really wanted. Any of you, I I know things have changed since I was young. Um... When any of you were little, Saturday mornings, did you like watch cartoons? 
Is that still a thing? Okay. You know, toy companies, they just, they thrash you on Saturday morning. You know, everything that they think that you need, they advertise it to you while you're watching your shows. We don't get a lot of commercials anymore because everything's streaming, but you know, me at eight years old, we, we had commercials, all right? So I'm sitting there one day, eight years old, probably watching He-Man or something, something like that. All right, I see some nodding over here. Yeah, He-Man. Um, and this commercial comes on for a, uh, it's like a bazooka Nerf gun. It's called, it's called the Ultimator, all right? And as an eight-year-old kid, I'm sitting here and I'm watching this commercial and, and, and it goes off and He-Man comes back on and I don't even care. Because you know where my mind is? My mind is on the Ultimator, which is the name of this toy that I have just been introduced to. And all of a sudden, I had to have that thing. Never mind the fact that I live in rural North Carolina. I have no neighbors. I had no kids to, to play Nerf Wars with. I didn't think through any of that. I simply I saw the commercial, and I had to have it. And you know, a couple months later, for Christmas, I got the Ultimator. And I was thrilled to death. For about three days, I shot everything that moved around the farm. I shot chickens. I shot my dogs. I shot my brothers. I shot my mom one time, and she spanked me. <laughs> That's kind of humiliating to be eight years old and get spanked by your mom. My mom is like four foot seven. She's really small, but she's, she's feisty. Um, anyway, for about three days, I carried the Ultimator everywhere that I went. I, I tied a sling around it so I could, you know, wear it. It was like this big, very cumbersome. And after a few days, you know, though, I, I got tired of shooting stuff. And I realized, you know, there's no kids around me to, to play Nerf Wars with. Uh, my older brother had gotten a, a paintball gun that same Christmas, and so that wasn't exactly a fair thing to go to war with him over. Um, so I put the ultimator up on a shelf in my room, and for the next 14 years, it sat there, all right? And here's, before I, before I start to move into our conclusion, I went digging, all right? And I dug really deep, and I found the commercial for the ultimator. So I want you, I want you guys, it's 30 seconds. Watch this and tell me if you would not have been like head over heels for this, all right? Check this out. Come any closer, we'll use you for target practice. I don't think so. This is the Ultimator. Ultimator! The most powerful in the world. Ultimate size. Ultimate distance. 70 feet. No problem. Ultimator rules. Who's the target now, pal? Ultimator! Ultimator rules. You do you guys get it? Okay. Here's the thing. You can only find them now on eBay, and they're like 300 bucks. So, you know, naturally, I go back to my mom later. I'm like, hey, mom, do you still have the Ultimator? And she's like, yeah, no, that went to the thrift store like 15 years ago. So anyway, somebody's got it. But you, can, you, you guys, this is not exclusive to me. You guys have been here. And whether it was a, a commercial you saw on TV or whether it was, you know, a, a, an ad you saw on social media, whether it was something that a friend introduced you to and, and just couldn't quit talking about it, you, you, you saw it and you said, man, I have to have that. 
and you think that it's going to fill some void in your life. You know, that was the first thing for me at eight years old. Did it stop after that? Did, I, did the, the wires connect in my head after three days when I put the ultimator on my wall and, and all of a sudden I understand that, hey, you know what? The things of this world are not going to satisfy me. Did that, was that my understanding? No. I started looking for the next thing that was going to satisfy me, and I'm, I, it, it went downhill from there. Um, <laughs> But this is perpetual cycle that we find ourselves in. We, we, we uh, long for things. We long for freedom. We long for experiences that we think are going to satisfy this void in our lives. And it becomes this cycle of searching and grasping and taking hold of something and then suffering the disappointment when that thing doesn't truly fill the void that's there in our lives. Now, as we read this account of creation and this account of Adam and Eve disobeying God, the question that everyone contemplates when they read the account is this, why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place? And the short answer is, without the tree and the command to not eat of it, there's no choice to obey or to disobey. And if you take away the tree and you take away the choice for obedience, then Adam and Eve are just Robots carrying out a program. There's no freedom because there's no choice. Others would say, well, what about the serpent? Like, why, why wasn't there swords at the, the door of the garden keeping the serpent out? The temptation of the serpent prompted Adam and Eve to make their choice. Obey God and live. Disobey God and die. And we just read the account so you guys know what happened. But I want you guys to know something else, that, that nothing that took place took God by surprise, nor did it, did it cause God to lose the hand that he had on his creation. In fact, as he was divvying out consequences for Adam and Eve's sin, he, he inserts a promise that foreshadows his plan of redemption. And it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He, he's talking to the serpent in this context. He's already told Adam and Eve that, or he's in the process of telling Adam and Eve that things, things are going to change. It's not going to be like it was, and they're going to be difficult. But this is what he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the heel, and you, or he, he shall bruise you on the head, sorry, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, it's easy for y'all to just read over that and think, I have no idea what that means, and that's fine. I'm sure somewhere down the line it's going to mean something. Let me just go ahead and tell you guys, that's the first prophecy concerning God's plan of redemption. You see, he's, he's not going to leave things broken as they are after Adam and Eve disobeyed. And that's something we're going to unpack a little bit more tomorrow but for this evening, here's what I want you guys to take away. I want you guys to understand that God's plan and God's creation was perfect, but that the sin of Adam and Eve changed that. They came to the guardrail of their, their freedom, and they believed the lie that God was withholding something from them, and they paid a terrible price for it. Tomorrow, we'll dig into the implications of that and what it means for you and for me. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for your word. It is a 
lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. But Lord, every time we come to look at your word and to study your word, we, we acknowledge that uh, while I can stand up here and I can read it and I can share clever stories and anecdotes, the reality is that you're the one that has to teach us these things. You're the one that has to give us application and make these words real in our lives. And so, Father, I pray this evening that, that you would do just that. That as your word has gone forth, that it would find fertile soil in the hearts and the minds of each and every one of these campers, and that it will begin to, um, to grow and to flourish, and that we can continue to feed that seed over the next few days until it produces, um, it produces a, a something that begins to bear fruit. And that's something that only comes about from you and through you. And so that's our prayer, Father. Um, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your love for us. Father, watch over us this evening as we continue to have a great time and to play games and just to enjoy uh, fellowshipping with each other. And um, we look forward to getting back in your word again tomorrow and learning more about you and, uh, and what you have done for each and every one of us. Lord, thank you for loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.